Welcome to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. This is your host, Doug Irwin. On this episode of the podcast, I speak with Renee Hansen, the founder of Vertical Athletics. I really enjoyed this conversation. Renee is such a dynamic human. She's a former veteran turned apparel manufacturer. We cover a lot of ground on this conversation. We look at the challenges facing veteran entrepreneurs, her experience pivoting through COVID, the ups and downs of product development, what it takes to get a product through Major League Baseball licensing, mental health, and much, much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Growth Pioneers. Welcome, Renee, to the Growth Pioneers podcast. It's good to see you. Thanks. It's great to see you too, Doug. Yeah. Once we met at uh, EO Alchemy, I was like, I've got to get you on the podcast. I appreciate that. That was a really fun event, and it was really great connecting with you. Yeah. It had been a couple of years since I've been to an Alchemy, but it's just so amazing to be in the company with so many other great entrepreneurs. It was awesome. And it was my first event and it was just incredible. I'm so happy that it was at the lake and we just had that amazing energy going on up there and the weather was perfect. I could have used it to be about 10 degrees warmer, but other than that, it was... uh... True, true. Well, having just moved to Florida, it was a nice contrast. Oh yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, again, so happy that you could fly all the way from Florida to join me in the podcast. So tell the listeners about your company, Vertical Athletics, of which you're the founder. Yes. So I started Vertical Athletics in 2008. It was originally tall-sized athletic apparel, hence the name Vertical Athletics. Really focused on that niche. I'm tall, could never find clothes that were really long enough or actually fit proportioned to, you know, to height. Like a lot of times the people just add inches to the bottom of hems and that doesn't really work because your knee and your elbow are still in the wrong place. So that's where I started. And the first recession in 2008 hit (laughs) right after I started the company. And we started going to pop-up shops and doing volleyball tournaments and rowing events, like places you would find tall people that were athletes. And through that experience, we started making some of these non-slip adjustable headbands. And that really took off. Uh, You know, during the recession, like people could afford a $10 headband, whereas a $85 pair of yoga pants wasn't necessarily something that, you know, it was was tough for people at that time, even though everything was being USA, it was still like a bit too much. So the headbands really took off. We did really, really well with the headband brand for about 10 years. Stopped making clothes four years in, so in 2012. Okay. And then in 2012, we got Major League Baseball licensing for our headbands. Yeah. So we did a really big pivot. We went from like sparkly girls headbands in the volleyball space to Major League Baseball fan wear, like women's headbands and fans. And then in 2015, I started using a patented cooling fabric. And once I started making like wider sweatband cooling headband products, the men started wearing it. And then the players started wearing it. And then Bryce Harper wore it. And, you know, so it's just been this escalation of product development and like kind of a pivot from a women's market into a athlete, male athlete market. Wow. What was sort of your impetus for the pivot? Well, the first one was just economics, like with the, with the you know, recession and the apparel and, you know, apparel and sizes and size ranges. And I actually had men's and women's apparel. It was a very, very complicated business model. Oh, yeah. A lot of inventory, a lot of different SKUs, all that. Yeah. Right. And it was all made in USA in small batch. So it was just really expensive. And like I said, the, just the economics of the that time just weren't really working, whereas yeah. the headbands just took off. And we our margins were really, really good with the headbands. And, you know, we got into shields and we just had some bigger distribution 
distribution wholesale yeah. as well as like all these direct to consumer events we went. So that was the first pivot. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the market starts to get saturated with anything new that you come up with. There's competitors that come in the space. And I had the opportunity with uh, Major League Baseball to get those that license. And it was a unique product to them at the time. And it was you know, it was just fun. It was a great opportunity to move into the license space, which does protect you a little bit more from from competitors. You know, you yeah. have to have the license to be producing the products. And then uh, I got really lucky. There was an article, you know, just right place, right time. There was a, an article that had been written about me as a Army veteran female founder in one of the trade magazines. And the sales rep for Cool Core Textiles saw that and reached out to me and said, hey, I have a fabric for you that I think would be really great for the Major League Baseball line, and they were just ending a exclusive partnership with Mission. And so I was able to jump in and get that fabric, and Major League Baseball gave me the rights to expand our product line into that cooling space. And so, you know, that that was a big pivot for us, and that's really like what started driving actually a lot of unisex and men's performance products. Wow. I mean, you know, just the power of serendipity being in the right place at the right time is is so powerful for companies, but also being able to make that opportunity so you can be there. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's 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 lucky to be the right place, right time, but it's, you know, you you, you have to do something with it too. And sure. I was grateful to have already had that much experience under my belt to be able to take that and run with it and create, you know, a new product line. For sure. So t- how did you get Major League Baseball? I'm so curious. I don't know anything <laughs> about you know, sports, more, you know, licensing or anything. Right, like right place, right time. Again, a former employee of mine was um, had family members in the baseball space, and she brought it to me to say, "Hey, I think this would be something that would be really cool." And so, through her connections, we got in front of Major League Baseball, and they liked it, and um, so they gave us a shot. And you know, our contracts have been like two, two year, two year, two year, and then a three year renewal. And now we're on another yeah. three year renewal. So obviously, we're doing something right. They're happy that we've you know continued to grow, and they you know. They they make their royalties and everybody's happy. Yeah, yeah. Well, about how big of a company were you when you were talking to Major League Baseball? Um, we were two employees <laughs> <laughs> and about three, three, like three, three fifty in sales, like three hundred fifty thousand yeah. or so. So, I mean, so pretty small. I really mean, small, <laughs> really small. We were very, very niche, like, and we were really just like one product, like a women's non-slip headband. Like it was just, they were like, you really want licensing for just this one product? And I was like, well, we got to start somewhere, you know? And yeah. um, so we, we opted not to do a sub-licensing deal with an existing brand because I really wanted that control of having my own license to see like what we could do with it. And, and it Honestly, it just added so much credibility to the business. You know, in the early days of we were making headbands and, you know, it's like there were people who would be like, oh, that's cute. You make headbands. And I'm like, no, you don't get it. Like, it's a really big business. I saw like thousands, tens of thousands of these in, in different channels and yeah. just small physical products brands. So it's just it's just a different thing for people to wrap their heads around and don't well, understand that there's like potential big business in like a single product. Now it, they do, but totally. back then they didn't. I can see when I was, we were talking at Alchemy about paddleboards versus headbands, I'd much rather have sold headbands. I mean, there's just so much <laughs> easier to ship around and right. lots of different problems. But Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But yeah, that's a, and that is a nice thing. It's a super lightweight, tiny product. I can 
ship it first class. You know, it's under four ounces for individual orders and things yeah. like that. It's There's a lot going for a small physical non-food type item that doesn't expire. It's not going to get bad. It doesn't need to be climate controlled. Like it's It kind of ha- checked a lot of those boxes. For sure. I still can't get over the fact that Major League Baseball did a licensing deal with the company at your yeah. size. I mean, that's really encouraging to me that, that actually yeah. I look at Major League Baseball in a completely different light. I mean, not that I had a, in a bad light, but <laughs> right. that's really amazing. Did they yeah. did they understand kind of where you were, size and scale? Yeah, I think so. My deal was appropriate and it was really tiny. You know, like it was, they really, I'm so glad they gave us the opportunity as such a low minimum guarantee when we first started. But, you know, again, I think they were looking for new innovative companies at the time to like bring new products to market. And the women's fan space has traditionally been shrink it and pink it. And Mm -hmm. You know, women fans, that's not what we want. Like, we want cool stuff that is sized and fit for us. And so there's there's been a few companies that have come along that have really done a great job at that. And, you know, I think we just kind of got in, again, at the right, right time, right place. I don't think a company could do that now. There's just so much consolidation going on in the sports licensing world with Fanatics being their own brand and manufacturer now. And, you know, it's just there's a lot of companies going very vertical. And I just I don't see that that would be a possibility in that space now for a small brand. Sure. So we got we got lucky with that and we grew it and we, you know, we did a good job with it. We took the took the opportunity ran with it. That's great. Well, you know, I I do think that we need to do more, like bigger organizations and bigger companies need to do more to take bets on smaller companies. I was just talking with a good friend of mine, Victor Huang, and we were just talking about how even just 5% to entrepreneurs would make a radical difference in terms of either corporate spending or government spending or just mm-hmm. just redirecting 5%. I mean, and your story just really reminds me of how important that is. I mean, they took a shot and, you know, find good timing and all of that. But ultimately, that has, you know, that propelled you into where you are today with the broader product lines and yeah. multiple market categories. And yeah, yeah, what a cool story. Thanks. Yeah. And I, I do think that there's a big movement right now for corporations to have they, there's supplier diversity programs. They they are putting more of an emphasis and value and seeing of what it what it means to make sure part of their procurement process is from diverse suppliers. So, I mean, that's a world that I'm just starting to get into. But I know I have a relationship with the Dallas Mavericks, and for their seats for soldiers night for two years in a row, they purchased a promotional headband from me. So, I think the first year it was like twenty twenty two thousand headbands, which at the time was the biggest single order I'd ever had and it was like doing backflips I was like it was so exciting you know that they took a chance on me but it it also you know I checked the boxes in the story they were trying to tell too they you know for a seats for soldiers night you're bringing in and appreciating military fans so giving them a gift that's number one made in the USA is meaningful number two I'm a female veteran. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, that was, like, a really nice thing for them to, you know, it made sense for them. And it was, of course, very exciting for me, whereas they could have just gone to their normal promotional suppliers and gotten some headband out of China, and it wouldn't have had a story behind it. And mine had a story. And that led into, during the pandemic, they, again, had, gave me the single biggest order I've ever had. And it came in on my birthday, which was, like, amazing. Of course. But we made 230,000 face masks for them for their community donation program. Wow. 
wow. um, all made in USA. And we got it out to them like about six weeks ahead of schedule. So, you know, while there's all these supply chain issues in Asia, we were able to make that quantity of product in about eight weeks. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm hoping as a result of the pandemic and the supply chain crunch, we're, we're going to see more onshoring. And I think this is one great example of that. I mean, obviously, when I was in the paddleboard business, we, we couldn't manufacture yeah. in the United States. But gosh, I wish I could have. I mean, just the challenges of global supply chain were just, it was just difficult as a small company. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, it also, though, the problems we're facing now is the sticker shock from consumers is that it really does cost quite a bit more to produce in the United States. Now, I know, like, over the last year, the barriers for imports have been higher, you know, logistics and shipping is exponentially higher. And that is really adding so much cost to the bottom line of people importing. So it's kind of leveling the playing field a little bit for made in USA products. But in general, our consumer prices are going up really significantly. And that's really hard for people. I mean, people haven't been working for a year. You know, everybody's reassessing what their values are and how they want to spend their time. And a lot of people that's really affected their income. So, you know, it's like it's been just a double-edged sword for people. So as a you you know U.S. manufacturer, I'm trying to be really mindful of how do I provide a product that people absolutely love and want to buy and support without it being like a huge financial um, sacrifice for people. I mean, sure. good things. I, I make small products, so yeah. they're all under forty dollars. <laughs> yeah. But but nonetheless, it's still quite a bit more than what a traditional imported product of similar val- you know similar value and characteristics would sure. be. So. So, yeah, so it's just uh, those are part of the part of the things that we have to think about as we're doing product development. Yeah, no, no, I totally agree with you. I, so, are you seeing? You know, how has COVID affected your business? Are you seeing increases, decreases? Like, what's some of the challenges that you've been facing during? It's been an absolute roller coaster. <laughs> okay, so ups and downs, good. <laughs> ups and downs. Okay. You know, when the pandemic first hit, I got a little moment of panic. We had shipped most of our first orders for Major League Baseball, so just kind of give a little context. We sell to mostly the stadium stores and they want, you know, so spring training it had obviously already shipped. Spring training was pretty much over at that point. And then people want to have the store stocked before opening day. So we typically ship our, you know, the first batch of orders in late February, early March. So we had shipped most of our stores by March 13th, and that's when we called it. We just said, "Hey, this we don't know what's going on. We're going to hold all orders. Anything that hasn't shipped, we're not going to sh- we're not going to ship until we know what's going on." And then, of course, over the next like month or so, we realized that anything we hadn't shipped got canceled. Anything that was the second order we usually get, we usually get like a split one order for opening day, second order like May, June for kind of refills. All of those were canceled. I was like, "Oh my gosh, what is going to happen with oh, my no. business?" But right then, my sister, who's a nurse, sent me a screenshot from a medical like Facebook group that she's in, and a nurse had sewn buttons on the side of her headband to wrap the disposable, like the disposable mask straps around the buttons instead of her ears because she was like double masking. And, you know, that was a big, big deal. All of a sudden, like all the healthcare workers were double masked up and their ears were just chafed and killing them. And so this was March 26. She sent me that screenshot and said, hey, you should put buttons on the side of your headbands. That had been posted that less than 24 hours and it had been shared over 7,000 times. And I said, oh my God, this is a thing. This is a thing. So immediately 
remotely. You know, we had our own warehouse in Gardnerville. So it was just my husband and I in there. So we weren't shut down. I was like, well, I'm considering ourselves essential workers. We're creating products people need. And it's just Matt and I anyway. So who cares? Like, so we were in our space, put the product up online, put it up on Amazon, talk to local people, buttons. I, I did, I was able to get 100,000 buttons from my supplier. One of my suppliers in China, I do have some raw materials that I bring over. And then my contractor in Los Angeles also did not shut down. They pivoted and started making masks right away. So he got a button sewing machine. We took headbands that were in the warehouse already. I found a couple of home sewers in, in Carson City who just came by our office every day, picked up 100 headbands and buttons, sewed the buttons on the headbands, brought them back the next day, picked up the next batch. So it was really cool. Like we, we kind of have a history of having home sewers make our products. Yeah. Like stay-at-home moms or grandmas or you know anyone who needs to make extra income. Like we've done that a lot over the years. So it was really easy for me to go, oh, we just need to get home sewers. Like who knows how to sew that one wants to make money. And, you know, of course, everything is shut down. People have time. So we did that. And then we were able to fill, we were the first company to put that product on Amazon. And we had, um, we had some really big months following that because nobody could ship. We were shipping out of our own yeah. office. And then Major League Baseball gave us on-field rights for masks and gators when the season started at the end of July that year. So wow. it was a very short season. We were one of three companies they gave the rights to. We were the only Made in USA brand. And we had the best year we've ever had in a period of 90 days. Wow. So it was extremely stressful. I was doing things I had never done. And... It was quite the ride. You know, after being in the Army for six years, like, there's really nothing I look at. And, like, of course, it's the situation you're in. You just deal with it. Like, it's resiliency. It's what everybody does. So it was was very, very difficult, long-hour work days. I made some pretty big mistakes when it came to ordering supplies and raw materials. And, you know, I mean, if you think toilet paper was in short supply, fabric was in short supply. Every single fabric distributor around the country had a run on fabric. Everybody who was all the all of the contractors who were still open bought all the fabric to make masks. Yeah. So the contractors were making masks, the fabric suppliers were out of fabric. So so you just kind of had to get it while you could get it. And so I overspent. And so then the following few months, you know, after we filled all those orders, like everything just stopped. And I, it was like devastating. I had mm-hmm. five employees and I had to let them all go in January. And it was like the lowest of the lows, but you just, you get through it, you deal with it. And, you know, we picked up major league soccer licensing in the spring and that filled in for the baseball orders. Cause you think about it, most of the stadiums didn't never opened to yeah. the public in 2020. So we had already shipped all the, all the suppliers had already shipped the stadiums in full in the beginning of 2020. They never opened. So they didn't need anything in 21. So the yeah. only thing we sold to baseball in 21 were more masks. So the stadiums that were opening that needed to have masks so that people could go into the stadium. Wow. So we really lost a full season of sales, which yeah. is quite a few hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah, no, I can understand. Um, so I was just kind of holding my breath, like waiting for more sales to come in and to be able to start using these raw materials that I overpurchased. And we're slowly catching up. So it's it's getting better for sure. And, you know, we added soccer licensing too. Sure. So. What a story though, Renee. I got to tell you, I just, I was getting chills. I was actually a little emotional when you were talking about, you know, how you pivoted so quickly. Because it, to me, this is like, you just embodied the entrepreneurial spirit. To see this thing on Facebook 
and put it into production mere weeks later is... The next day. Or the next day. <laughs> oh, sorry. The next day. Sorry. The sorry. next day. <laughs> <laughs> is speaks to that entrepreneurial mindset. In some of my previous companies, you know, we had some bad things happen. And I just, one of the things I, I learned from that was you can't sit around and wait. And like to be able to see that and turn that into action so quickly, it just really speaks, you know, highly of you as the, the entrepreneur and, and your ability to turn that. It's just really an amazing story. It really got me emotional. Oh. I was getting uh, chills as you were telling me that story. So it cool. It was cool. And I really felt like a community came together to make it happen. I mean, to have a couple of people, to, to be able to find some people that could sew for us, first of all, which was amazing. And, you know, one of the women, like, owned three businesses in Carson and they were all shut down from the pandemic. So she was like, oh my gosh, I got, I've got all this overhead. How am I going to cover this? I can't work. And somebody was like, oh, well, you're a sewer and Banny Bands, headbands need sewers. And so she was able to make a few thousand dollars from us in just a couple of weeks from the sewing that she did. And yeah. so that means a lot to me too. It's like, not only are we making a great product to put out there to the public who needs it right now, but we were able to engage in our supply chain people who were, you know, had the skill set that we could put to work that, you know, could still do it in their own home on their own time. And at the beginning of the pandemic, when we had no idea what we were facing, nobody wanted to have, you know, be in person anywhere because we didn't know what that meant. So yeah. it was like the safest way to do that is just to let people take product and sew it at home and bring it back. That's great. Yeah. Um, you know, I, as you were talking, I was reflecting on this, you know, during that period, a really good friend of mine owned a bunch of or owns a bunch of restaurants and bars in town. And it, you know, they just all got shut down. And literally, I think it was the same thing. The order came down to shut down. The next day, he picked up a hammer and started doing construction. And I just remember during that time actually having a little bit of survivor guilt, right? Because, you know, my role is de-risked relative to my entrepreneurial friends right now. You know, I work in a nonprofit to support entrepreneurs. Yeah. We had risk, but it was just different risk. And so I just remember it's the same kind of thing. You just, you don't even skip a beat. You just, what am I doing next? How it's am I going to bring do. people? It's just what you do. It's and I just, do. I admire that a lot. And I appreciate what you've done <laughs> in your business. It's, it's really, it's really touching, honestly. So have you always been an entrepreneur? I mean, I, obviously <laughs> there's, there's some, something driving you, but. So I, yes and no, like on, uh, like as an actual business owner, this is my first company. So I started in 2008 and we're still here. Pivot, 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 next, here we are. But we're, we're, this is still the same original company that I started in 2008. Entrepreneurial mindset, yes. I've had that since I was a little girl. I was always pretty different. I never liked marching to the same beat as everyone else, um, which, you know, was just difficult growing up and being, being a little different. But I was an athlete and that was great. And, you know, like that was, that was really fun. And then I had thought I was going to go to law school after college, yeah. but I needed a break and I had student loan debt and I wanted to travel and learn another language. So I joined the army. Wow. <laughs> Talking about beating to the, the same drum. I know, I know. It is ironic, but I looked at what my goals were and I looked at all the options out there and thought, it's five years of my life and I'm out of debt completely. My friends are going to be paying off their student loans for decades. Like, I just looked at that as a really great, fast way to do that, to serve my country and to get experience. I mean, I was an intelligence analyst. I had a security clearance. I thought that was the direction I was going to go. I never thought I would make the military a career, but I did think I would make government a career. And then I got in the military and then 9-11 happened and I was like, no, no, this is not actually what I want to do. I was too afraid to say what I wanted to do, which was go to fashion school and start my own brand. Like I grew up in a kind of a 
more conservative Midwest, Michigan. That's it was just doctors and lawyers. That's what you do. Yeah. Nobody goes to fashion school. And I was like, no, no, <laughs> life's too short. You know, after being in the military and seeing people deploy and, you know, I was just like, you have to follow your heart, even if it's scary. And so I got when I got off active duty, I moved to Los Angeles, went to the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising to learn apparel manufacturing. And I was doing that at the same time I was finishing out my reserve time. So I was still in the reserves while I was in fashion school. That was a huge contrast. <laughs> I could only imagine the dichotomy of that. It was huge. It's a thing. When you come off active duty, there's definitely an integration time. Like, we are wired very differently in the military, and it's very, it's a very team-oriented career, and it's very, very structured. And, you know, I, I got off active duty when I was... 27. And I was a staff sergeant when I got out. So I was very much like in my job, doing my job, leading a, you know, squad. And to pivot from that and go to fashion school with mostly 19-year-old girls who were so excited in Southern California about what they were doing. Like I was excited for them. I really was. But there was also a part of me that really wanted to, you know, physically harm them. Yeah, you could say it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it was tough. I mean, it was tough. It was very, but it was really important. I think it really helped me come back to center very, very quickly. Being a veteran is is challenging sometimes. Like yeah. I'm, I'm so blessed. I didn't see, I didn't see anything that was really messy. I never deployed, even though I was in from 2001 to 2007. Like that's definitely was the the heart of Iraq and Fallujah and Afghanistan, and it was just a really tough time. And I'm so grateful that my job kept me behind a computer doing an active sure. job. And but still, nonetheless, there was still like a mentality and mindset that needed to just kind of be relaxed. Yeah, and being in such a completely different environment of fashion school like it actually it just really helped me come back to center faster yeah. which i think was allowed me to just start my business right away and just go for it what an interesting story i think you and i were talking about this at alchemy but there was a book called tribe it was a lot about ptsd and coming out of the military and the, the, the yeah. thing that i didn't really get until i read this book was how different the mindset is like you just mentioned it before you're all team you're working together you're all in this collective problem and then, you know, you come out into the business community and it's sort of every person for themselves. Absolutely. And, and how hard that is, especially if you've gone through trauma or seen something traumatic. Yeah. And this is, that's actually in his, in the book Tribe, but he describes that as actually probably one of the bigger influences of PTSD is that reintegration period. Mm -hmm. It's given me a lot of appreciation. You know, I, I do some men's work. And so I, we work with a lot of first responders and veterans. You can see them. It's a real thing. And I, you know, I'm glad that you were able to make it out without too much trauma, and I appreciate your commitment to the country. And I, it's so funny that you think fashion school is centering. I mean, it seems like a totally <laughs> your visual of these nineteen-year-old girls super excited, right. just cracking me. <laughs> they were great, though. They were so excited about life and like what they were doing, and but just like absolutely clueless about like what I considered then quote the real world, and that's sure. just a story and an illusion as well. Like what I went through was just as real as what they were going through. But in my mind back then, I was like, "You girls are clueless as far as the, like you know what people, other people are out there doing and working." And but it, it brought me back to center. It got me off of feeling that way yeah. and just being able to be the creative that I wanted to be. I mean, I'm definitely you know I find the joy in doing product development. I like solving products in 
creating physical products that make people feel better. Like, yeah. like I said, like I mean, we've pivoted to cooling accessories now, and and I just love that I can help people perform better and feel better, like on and off the field, and just by having these textiles that are that are technical. <laughs> you know, I mean, our technology has come so far that we have like nanotechnology in textiles, and we're incorporating that in what we do, and and that is sorry, I'm a bit of a nerd on that, so I get really excited go, about it. <laughs> we can start talking about graphene. There's a whole new graphene company oh my in gosh. town. I know. No way. I yeah. read about graphene like six years ago and I was like, oh, can I wait until I figure this out? Yeah. Like, it's just, it's amazing, like, you know, the strength of graphene and how it can be incorporated on a nano level to textiles. And so it's just, yeah, I mean, I, of course, that's that's what I look at it for. I'm sure there's all these, all yeah. sorts of for different applications. Well, but. honestly, we should connect you. There's a new company that just came here called Nanotech Energy and they, um, I think it was Nanotech something. Yeah. And they, one of the founders got the Nobel Prize for his discovery of graphene and they're building a big plant out at Trick and it's all graphene and textiles. So this was like the guy out of London, right then? Yeah, I guess so. I, did, yeah. I didn't meet him. I met the CEO. But okay. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. All good yeah. things are coming to Nevada. All just right. Saying. Well, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I, I, I'm still, I still have one foot here. I'm very much enjoying Florida and happy we moved there. But I, you know, Nevada's, Nevada's definitely the second home. Well, you get, but you get to the benefit of both yes. worlds, right? You, you have yes. your EO community here. You've got your business here. Part, you know, yes. part. So it's, yeah. it's great. Yeah. The business still lives here. It's a C corporation. So it gets to stay in Nevada. And do you yeah. still have uh, you still have some manufacturing here, right? In, no, oh, we never had manufacturing. We have assembly here. Oh, assembly. Our manufacturing is in Southern California and Florida. So I have two two different domestic factories that help make our products, and our warehouse is now in Southern California, pretty close to the factory. So that was a big shift for us this summer when we moved. We moved out of our warehouse and put all of our products into a third party warehouse that also does all of our packaging. Yeah. So they'll ship our direct to consumer and our wholesale orders. Yeah, that's great. I mean. Yeah. It's interesting to see the shift of what it means to be located somewhere now. I mean, COVID has yes. upended that. You know, in economic development, we used to – we still have definitions for what headquarters are. But during the COVID, we, you'd have all these companies who show up like, it's the CEO plus three in desks, and they have 70 people, and they're all over the world. So where's their headquarters? Like, there is not really a definition for that. You know, that's an interesting thing. And I, that's kind of how we've always operated. So I think the pandemic has normalized that more. But I still struggle with – how to be a part of the community as a business owner and leader when legally my company is in Nevada and I now personally live in Florida and I'm trying to create new connections and relationships in Florida. And I'm like, but I'm not a Florida company. So it's just, I'm just, you know, struggling a little bit with like how to figure out how to be a part of both communities because my sales team lives all over there. You know, they're an outside contractor and all of their people are independents and they all live all over the country. And, you know, I have two factories that make our stuff and they're in different parts of the country. So we really are a national brand and so how do you create that local feeling you know we want to take pride in buying local and stay small and i'm like well we're absolutely small and we're made in usa but we're we're an american company yeah i think it's just a different story i need to tell so we're an american brand our textiles are made in north carolina our products are made in florida and southern california our packaging is made in minnesota like we really make everything in the u.s now and you know the people who help us are all over the country too yeah. so it's just interesting when you're this small and you want to tell that local story but you don't have a location to tell it from 
Well, I think the location's where you're at. I mean, you're the lifeblood of the company. Plus, I got to say, when you said American company, I felt like American flags were going to come down in this room. <laughs> I just feel this sense of like national pride sitting here talking to you yes. about your company. It's just, you know, yes. it's just amazing. Yes. And I think there needs to be more of that and less of any political stuff that likes to be tied to that. I yeah. mean, I think we just need to bring, you know, American pride back into American manufacturing and loyalty from consumers to support Americans. You yeah. Know? And this is kind of the double-edged sword to cost, right? I think we've been drunk on cheap goods, and I'm sure that there is a there are some positives to that, but there are some negatives to that. And hopefully we'll find a new balance that feels more appropriate. I think real-time supply chains, just-in-time manufacturing, all that works great when everything is working, but then when it doesn't work, it doesn't work well. And then you really see you need resiliency, not necessarily efficiency. And so there's, I think there's, hopefully we'll learn some lessons for this. Maybe not. <laughs> I'm, I'm confident we will. I, uh, I like to have that outlook because we don't know what's actually going to happen. So why not make the story in our head be a good one? <laughs> I agree with you. I like that. So coming back to something you said before about growing up in Michigan and kind of not really feeling like you could pursue your dreams. Now, you know, you're out there, you're making it happen. What's kind of on your heart now? Like, what are you seeing? Like, what's your next thing? I mean, you, you've kind of moved, you're moving this forward, but what are the things that are you're hoping to, to create now that you've removed some of these constraints from yourself? Right. So I started dabbling in this already a couple of years ago, but then things really blew up with the sports side of things. So I pressed pause on it. But I want to use these cooling textiles that I have incorporated into our sports brand into a line of accessories that help women who are dealing with perimenopause and menopause symptoms, particularly hot flashes, help them feel better and cool down and just honestly just feel better. At this age of life and this transition, I think there's a huge gap in women's health and what we talk about. Like, we just kind of stop talking about women's health after childbearing years. And the reality is, like, we need to start talking about perimenopause and menopause. Like, women literally think they're dying because they are having these different symptoms come up. And, and these are things that I'm experiencing myself and that I started experiencing when I was 37. And I just started digging in and learning. And my doctor said, oh, it's perimenopause. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> I'm 37. Like, how is this perimenopause? But sure enough, like, we overlaid my symptoms against my monthly cycle. And, like, that hormone chart tells you a lot. And wow. the fact that I had never even seen the hormone chart until I was 37 says a lot about our education system oh, and, yeah. like, what we're not talking about with women's health. And I think that's super tragic because if we could just, like, start addressing these symptoms and, and issues that women are going through, then it wouldn't occupy so much mental space at a time in women's lives when they are busy being moms yeah. and working and juggling family and, and other responsibilities. And so basically, I want to pivot what I'm doing again. Um, however, I don't want to let go of the existing sports business. Sure. I just need to systematize that and bring in a couple more people, some you know, strong operator, basically, who's really excited about sports and run with that because we're, we're doing some really fun things there and we're actually expanding our licensing deals right now. So I love that and I love being a part of that. But my heart is 
telling me to help women feel better as they're going through perimenopause and menopause. So kind of like 40 to 60-ish age range. And, you know, there's there's a handful of companies out there that are addressing particular things in that women's health space. And I think there's a big, big opportunity for the products that I want to bring to market, of course, but also just kind of a platform for education and just addressing that there's options out there and just educating to say, you know, I mean, even Oprah did this big spread like uh, two years ago in O Magazine that was like, you're not dying, it's just perimenopause. And like, literally it was this whole chart of like migraine, heart palpitations, hot flashes, like all of these things oh, that yeah. women have no idea when they first start experiencing them. Most of them have no idea what it actually is. Like we literally think we're dying. And I just think that's crap. And it's a space that needs to be disrupted and we need to start talking about women's health and periods and the hot flashes and all of the stuff that makes so many people uncomfortable. Like, we can't fix it and take the shame and stigma away from it until we start talking about it. And once we start doing that, like, I mean, just think about it. If you make women ages 40 to 60 feel better, how great is the world? It's much better. My wife is 45. And let me tell you, she's been going through all these things. And when she's happy, I'm happy. The kids are happy. And, you know, honestly, she's gone through all of those same things. And I had the same reaction. I was in this because it started years ago. Like, you're too young to be going through, pre, you know, menopause. Yeah. And we didn't get a chance, though, to overlay the chart. And so she just had to kind of figure it out and actually kind of get her doctor to kind of agree to it. You know, he was they were they were not that supportive in the beginning, but I think now she's in a better spot. But just, I'm with you. When she's happy, everybody's happy. Everybody's happy. So so my goal with the new brand, which I don't have a name for yet, I just want to change the world. So who knows? Maybe I'll call it change the world, is to help 100 million women in basically age 40 to 60 live their best lives. Yeah, I love that vision. And where did this come to you? Like, how did, how did this come to you? <laughs> Funny story from my download from the universe, however you want to say it. Funny enough, it was, it was 2017. So yeah, I feel a little lame. It's 2021 right now, and I really haven't done a lot of work on this. But hey, there's been a pandemic. Um, <laughs> and you're running a business and you've survived through that. Yeah, yeah. I think you should hold yourself with a little <laughs> right. grace there on that one. Right. So it was November of 2017 and I it was the first day of the Major League Baseball trade show. And I was in Vegas in a hotel room and I woke up at like six o'clock in the morning and it was so vivid, this, this dream that I'd had that I actually grabbed my phone and recorded myself retelling what I had just seen in my mind in my dreams and it was a vision to help women deal with hot flashes and perimenopause and menopause and use the cooling fabrics that I was already using in our baseball line to do this so to create products specifically for women that will help them feel better so yeah I love it I wish I get all these dreams of hot springs so I just go out hot springing I don't know how to turn that into something but you know Right. So, no, I mean, it was just, it was, it was really, it was so powerful that I had to grab my phone and record it. And I actually don't know if I still have the recording because my phone, like, you know, of course, I've gone through like three phones since then. Yeah. I, I hope it's in Dropbox somewhere. I hope I was smart enough to like save it because, because when I launch this brand, it'll be one of those really cool stories to be like, this is where it came from. And that's that gut feeling. That's that in- yeah. intuition. That's that prayer, whatever you want to call it. I do believe that it's source energy coming through us and guiding us. And I feel honestly irresponsible if I don't do something about it. But, but you've learned to trust that, right? I mean, I think you've had to overcome these ideas, like, you know, growing up in, in a different way. I mean, you kind of, like you said,
said you knew you were different, but to be able to allow yourself to do that probably took a series of decades. <laughs> it took De- decades sure. to like maybe mostly don't care what people think of me, but there's still that there. There's there's always that there. Like we're human. We're here having this human experience. But yeah. the more I see examples of other entrepreneurs living authentically, the more I've realized that I'm doing that, but not fully. Like, I just have this continuing bubbling up of this brand and this idea of wanting to help women. So, so back at it. <laughs> I think that's beautiful, though. I mean, to be able to trust your intuition and to test that with real skills to bring it to the market, I mean, it takes courage to do that. It really does. The more I get to know myself, the more I, I see some of my edges and being able to push yourself over that edge takes courage. And plus, probably some experience, knowing that you're not going to die on the other right. side of that. Right. I think we've gone through enough of the terror barriers to know that we're not going to and it's funny, my husband uses the analogy of like a dog with an invisible fence. Uh-huh. Like it can see what's on the other side and it wants to go so bad, but it knows it's going to really hurt going through that. And, yeah. you know, if you can just push yourself to just go after it, like you're not going to die. Yeah. It might hurt for a minute, but it's okay. And that's how you're living that freedom. That's how I feel. I mean, I, I want people to feel free and I feel free in what, what I'm doing and how I'm able to express myself. And, you know, the more authentic we can be with that, the more, you know, the more value we bring to the world and the more peace and joy we have within ourselves. So well said. I couldn't agree more. I mean, the the happiest I am is when I'm fully living as myself without restrictions. And it's a process of unlearning. So much. <laughs> it's such a big process. Yeah. So have there been yeah. people that have been, who would you say have been the most inspirational to you or, or biggest impacts on your life? Right off the top of my head, I would say Ryan Daniel Moran. He runs uh, the capitalism.com and he is a very conscious person who really wants to help entrepreneurs create a vision and mission. And he does a lot with physical products, brands, like that's definitely his niche, but he's walking the walk. And I just like, I love, uh, I've gotten to meet him a few times. He's just a great dude. And yeah, and he just, that's what he wants to do. He wants to encourage people to be the best entrepreneur they can be if that's their journey. And he has a lot of support and resources within that community. I'm a part of that community as well. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of people, I mean, especially recently, just being plugged into the Institute for Veterans and Military Families, IVMF, out okay. of Syracuse University. And I've gone to a couple of their events and and they are like they have everything from like boots to business type events and as well as like conferences. So I've been to their conference twice and and that's really bringing in the veteran community who's yeah. starting businesses. And so that's a really fun, interesting group of people. And I mean, you talk about grit, like oh yeah. A veteran entrepreneur, they literally are the grittiest people I've ever met. Oh, I'm sure. So yeah. uh, do you think there's some unique challenges uh, for veteran entrepreneurs? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, just dealing with all of our mental stuff. Like, I mean, one thing that we pretty openly talk about, especially in that group, because people are conscious enough to accept when they know they need help is talking about mental health and therapy. I did not deploy, but I still had, I had trauma that I went through right, actually, it's ironically, when I was in the reserve, right after I got off active duty, I was bit in the face by a dog oh. and it required, you know, like four hour reconstructive surgery and it created trauma. It was sure. definitely PTSD and I didn't know that's what it was. My brain was looping what had happened. Like it just kept reliving it and when anything traumatic happens, like that's the tendency um, until you stuff it away and say, nope, this didn't happen to me. And 
it's always going to come back up in like the worst times if you don't deal with that and process it in a healthy way. And so I think therapy is like so important. And through that dog bite experience and the therapy that I went to after, it allowed me to process and recognize other things that I had gone through that I was like, oh, yeah, I should probably let that go if I'm going to be the best version of myself. And, you know, it really is just like letting go of those mental stories and, and honestly just recognizing that they're stories. Yeah. They're not true. They're in the past. They don't affect you right now. And you can create whatever future you want to create, but you have to be able to step back and see that they're just stories before you can move past that. And totally. so I think, I mean, I know with your men's health and men's group, you guys talk a lot about that kind of stuff. And yeah. it's so important. And in that veteran community in particular, because, you know, I mean, you think veterans, healthcare workers, first responders, like there's so many awful things that they're exposed to. And, you know, it's almost normalized because that's just, that's what you do. <laughs> yeah, it's, but it, you know, it's normalized. I think they're getting better. I mean, I, you know, I've got some friends in the fire community. It seems like the fire department's making real progress in this, but I think a lot of it, especially around men, it's sort of like just toughen it up. Yes. And hopefully Women we're getting too. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Women too. Like it's like a d- double burden for women. Not only do we have to do it all, we have to do it better to prove that we're we're worthy of being there in the first place. Yeah, I didn't like, consider that. No, I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's tough. But again, all of that's just a BS story too. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. What I'm happy about though is it does seem like that's becoming a bigger part of the national dialogue. I mean, I'm really hopeful that we're sort of normalizing mental therapy and all of these things. We're kind of bringing this out into the into the ether because, and I think there's a lot of it's being led by the veterans. And I think that's amazing because yeah. everybody could benefit from this. I mean, I, yes. there's probably not some day that goes by that I talk to somebody about therapy and you get all of these reactions. Oh, I don't need I'm that good. or I'm good or, yeah. you know, that's just you know for people that are sick or whatever. Like, no, 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 no. Consider it a well visit. Yes. I mean, we just took our kids to go see our marriage therapist and it was the most unbelievable experience ever. I just, wow. and I, you know, people that know me know I'm not, it's hard to make me speechless. I was speechless. I was just <laughs> sitting there like, what did we do? And, you know, here the, our therapist asks our kids, how are your parents doing? And they gave us eights and nines. I thought it was great. You know. Wow, that's cool. But but they also, we also learned a lot about that. And then in the process, normalized, hey, look, if you're going to be a pro athlete, you wouldn't do it alone. You'd have a coach. If you're going to go through life, why not just have coaches? I kind of think about therapists. I mean, I know they're different disciplines, but it's just like someone that can help you make sense of all the craziness, which is your mind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I think the coaching analogy is like one of the best ways to kind of shine light on a parallel of people who may be thinking that mental health and therapy might be something they could consider. Like if you by comparing it to a coach, even athletes have coaches that walk them through visualization and, you know, people's like, oh, it's woo-woo manifestation stuff. And I'm like, literally... How many times do you think Tiger Woods went through his swing in his head before he went out there and oh, did yeah. it? Like it is a real measurable thing that your body experiences physiologically, whatever your mind is experiencing. So if we can train and coach our minds into the results that we want, we're much more likely to see them. And I, I think that that's so apparent in the sports world. And maybe it'll make it less woo-woo to everybody when they think about it in other aspects of their life. Yeah, I, no, I totally agree with you. I think that will help 
bring that forward. And when you see in our men's group, there's a couple of guys that they're SWAT cops and they're the most open-hearted people. And so I think it just takes a lot of those people to stand up and say, hey, this was what was going on for me. This is what helped me. And just your major inspiration. I mean, the fact that you're so open about your experience, even if one person hears that and it helps normalize it, then that's an amazing gift that you've given to people. So I, I just, for me, I'm very open about that because I feel like maybe, maybe the struggles that I've had can now be turned into gifts for other people. I agree. And that's like one of the reasons that I, you know, I don't I don't have any fear or shame or anything bottled up about sharing that because I've seen how other people have shared information and been vulnerable about their own stories. And it's affected me and it's given me courage to explore the things about myself that I want to change. Yeah. And so I think that is super important. Like I just, I was at the capitalism conference in September and it was a magic event. And the people they had come on stage, I mean, Mickey Argoal, who founded, uh, co-founded Think a period underwear company and Alotushi, the bidet company. So talk about disruptive taboo spaces. And they're both nine-figure businesses. And there were just a handful of other people that came across AJ Patel. And I mean, basically, there were were multiple eight, nine-figure business owners that came across. And every single one of them had the common denominator of what they said was just be authentic. Create that vision people will show up and be authentic and don't worry about it, just be authentic. And it was just so reinforcing. It was exactly what I needed to hear to say, okay, we've had a big enough breath after the pandemic. What's next? It is helping women. And that is what's, for me, being the most authentic version of myself. So how am I going to do it? I don't know. <laughs> I know you'll do it. I have I'll no, do it. I have no <laughs> doubt. I have complete and utter confidence. Just... <laughs> Just sitting here in the room with you, I know you're going to do it. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited. I guess I hope that Eoda hasn't trademarked the word intimacy, but I think that that really speaks to the types of entrepreneurs that I that I like the most are the ones that you know, how's it going? And people like, oh, it's good. Or how's it going? Oh, you know, we lost a major customer today. This is going on. I've been worried about this, and this is what's going on. And you're like. That's real. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah, I mean, and I think I think what's beautiful about EO is that it's not a bitch fest either. Like, all of those things are going on, but you're also like, you're not afraid to share the things that have been going really great. Like, oh my gosh, like, I just had the biggest order I've ever had in my life. Like, I'm so freaking excited about it. And, and you know that you're going to be supported by that community, not yeah. looked down upon because of somebody else's worthiness issues. And so I just appreciate that so much about this community is it's the full spectrum of the deep five, in, you know, 5% intimate stuff that we talk about and share in this group, the good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful, like it doesn't matter. We share it all. The real, and, the authentic. And, that, and right? that's the, what did you say? In, 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 Instimacy. Instimacy. Yes. Instimacy. I like that. I need to say that a few times. Yeah, I know. It's, um, it, 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 instimacy. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, which is great. I mean, those are my those are my favorite people. So, and I'm glad that you know you have this other group was really inspiring to you. I was as you were telling that story, I was remembering my early days of my first company or my first bigger company was a at home male fertility test and having to go. Oh, you wow. said hello, Tushy. I mean, I had to go out and yeah. sell sperm counters. Like this right. was a complicated <laughs> issue. But actually, on that circuit, I met a woman who was selling a device that was like a to help strengthen Kegel muscles, and oh, it yeah. was basically a vibrator. Mm-hmm. I mean, kind of. And just how challenging that was. I mean, I and I could feel for it because I was up there trying to sell sperm counters for <laughs> years. 
<laughs> but it seems like, you know, we're much more open about that these days. We are. Yes. I mean, and I, I think, you know, certain parts of the country are more open to talking about things like that. But eventually we'll all get there. And, the, you know, it's a little scary being on the leading edge of that. But that's what that courage comes from to say my vision and mission is bigger than any slack I'm going to catch from somebody who's afraid to talk about their own body. Like, yeah. whatever. Like, I don't care. I'm going to help you anyways. It I'm just... going to help you feel better and release any of that stigma and shame that's associated with with our bodies, you know? Yeah. So. We have a long way to go, though. I mean, I guess it's been probably eight or yeah, probably well, over 10 years. But when we first partnered with Church and Dwight Corporation, they were just product testing this new, it was a vibrating ring. And so they were going to sell, they owned the Trojan brand. Uh-huh. And he was telling, the CEO was telling me a story about how they decided to get this ring. It wasn't legal in a bunch of states because it was basically, you know, whatever. Uh, it was like a, you know, a sex device. And then they went to this, their first supplier and they ordered some number of units and, you know, this is Christian White's like a $2 billion company, a huge right. company. And they ordered what he thought was a large number. And the, the Hong Kong guy was super angry with him because they sold more in like one small town in, you know, or one small part of Hong part Kong of world, right. <laughs> than we were going to sell in the entire country of the United States. And, he, you know, it was just super funny. It just reminded me about how... How far we, yes, yes, we have a long way to go in terms of changing hearts and minds on that. But I know you're on that path, and I just so appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing your your stories and your experience. And it's just been a real inspiration to have you on. You've really moved me today. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure being here, and yeah, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, till next time. Awesome. Mm-hmm. 